watchers in the fourth dimension. Keeping the arms of Morpheus, eh, my boy? <laughs> oh, cocky licking comes round. I've always got this. Hello, you are listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And don't forget, if old Cockalickin comes around, I've always got this. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. As we are moving into the second production block of Doctor Who, we're actually moving into our own second production block, having taken a break between recording. So, before we get started, some small housekeeping items. We've actually decided to make some changes to the show. Most notably, we'll no longer be doing a specific segment on current affairs, and we'll start weaving those into the discussion where relevant. Additionally, we've kind of made some changes behind the scenes on how we're going to talk about things. You may or may not notice those. Kudos to you if you do. So with that out of the way, let's move on to the rescue. Starting out behind the scenes, we have quite a small cast this time around. The story was written by David Whittaker, who was most recently story editor up until the last story. And he's jumping in by writing the first story that's edited by his successor. Previously, he wrote The Edge of Destruction, and he'll go on to write six more stories after this. In the director's chair, we have the return of Christopher Barry, who last directed for the show on five episodes of The Daleks. He'll contribute to eight more stories across the show, and he will also have stints on Out of the Unknown, Moonbase 3, and The Tripods. This time round, there is no new music. The score to The Daleks by Tristan Carey is just reused as a cost-cutting exercise. And then from a design perspective, Raymond Cusick returns to the show for the sixth and final time. Of course, he's most notable for designing the iconic Dalek props. Finally, we have two new regulars, one behind the scenes and one in front of the camera. So we have the previously mentioned new story editor, Dennis Spooner. He had previously worked on The Reign of Terror, which he wrote the season one closer. And he'd previously worked on Fireball XL5 and Stingray, both Jerry Anderson Super Marionation shows. He'll stay with us for a total of six serials, editing up until the chase, and then he returns to a writing role. And then in front of the camera, we have Maureen O'Brien as Vicky. This is her first television role, and she had previously been a very prolific theatre actor in her hometown of Liverpool. After she leaves the show, she struggled to get acting roles for a while and actually worked as a part-time supply teacher until she started getting more acting jobs. And then, like many stars of the show that are still with us, she still now reprises her role as Vicky in the Big Finish audios. So with that, we are on to our 10-second plot summary, which this time around is in the very capable hands of Julie. Over to you, Julie. So in The Rescue, we are introduced to a cranky, supposed paraplegic Bennett and a naive Vicky who are waiting to be rescued on the planet Dido. Meanwhile, while the Doctor takes a nap, Ian and Barbara are separated when the spiky creature Cachillion pushes Barbara off a cliff, and then causes a rock slide. When Ian tells the Doctor this, he is very suspicious, as he's already been to this planet before. While the Doctor and Ian risk their lives to monsters and old-fashioned booby traps, we find that Barbara has been taken in by Vicky. Barbara then starts this friendship off on the wrong foot by killing Vicky's pet. The Doctor and Ian arrive only to find Bennett gone. The Doctor confronts Bennett and discovers the terrible crimes he has committed. When Bennett nearly kills the Doctor, we discover there are at least two survivors from the planet who then kill Bennett by pushing him off a cliff, and deposit the Doctor back at the TARDIS. The Doctor then offers Vicky a place on the TARDIS to fill the void of his abandoned season, and we are finally left with the best cliffhanger yet. <laughs> Where they are, in fact, literally hanging off a cliff. <laughs> ah, excellent. <laughs> I try. So, 
we start with episode one, The Powerful Enemy. So in this episode, the TARDIS lands, the Doctor takes a nap while Ian and Barbara leave, they get separated by Coquillian. Ian makes it back into the cave while Barbara falls down a cliff and is rescued by Vicky. And then we end with some booby traps, suspiciously placed, given that the Dido people are supposedly peaceful. And that's the cliffhanger. So what did we think this time around? I really liked at the beginning how playful the Doctor was with Ian and Barbara. He was joking around. He had that great line when he was talking to Barbara where she said, Doctor, the trembling stopped. And he said, I'm so glad you're feeling better. And you <laughs> can tell he was that. just teasing her. That was great. <laughs> I think I think what was your uh, I think this is all in in line with the which we discussed about many episodes back with the change of the doctor's personality done intentionally by the writers to make him a little bit more warm and rounded instead of being, you know, as before, we always like to talk about wanting to bash people's heads in with rocks. Yeah, he, yeah. he definitely was written warmer and with a better sense of humor. I also really liked the line where after they have exited the TARDIS in the cave on planet Dido, which I refuse to mispronounce for comedic purposes because I'm above <laughs> that, where he says, we haven't had much luck with caves so far. <laughs> and I really liked that callback. It was really nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, somewhat reflective of the new story editor. I don't think it's any coincidence that through this entire story, the Doctor is absolutely delightful. There's an interesting comment as well, though, because Barbara also mentioned about like going out of the TARDIS yet again. And I'm like, it would be a boring show if you didn't run into crazy things on every stop. And it was just... She keeps making these random comments that don't make any sense. There were a few of those. I think they were trying to bring new viewers up to speed a bit on how the episodes worked. I just kind of got that feeling. Don't forget, this this was the first episode in the second production block, so there was a natural stop. And this was, I guess, where, you know, a natural handover where this might have been the beginning of season two, effectively, from a production perspective. Getting back to the uh, warmth of the doctor and uh, his, you know, playfulness, what I thought was really great and that also um, had even stronger effect because of the uh, warmth that he and Barbara and Ian had in those scenes, uh, those immediate scenes within the TARDIS, was that we had that gut-wrenching call out to Susan. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was heartbreaking. I don't know why. Maybe I'm a sucker for it, but there's always... I always feel a lot more affected by a call out to something tragic or sad if it follows something that is lighthearted and fun. What I love here is the Doctor as he was uh, in the early part of season one would have lashed out once he realized Susan wasn't there. And instead of lashing out, he's very, very nice to Barbara and is almost kind of thankful that Ian and Barbara are there. He's still got He's still got friends, even if it's not his granddaughter. And he, he treats them like friends. There's a scene early on when Ian and Barbara are outside, and Ian is actually talking about the doctor and saying, wow, usually he would be the first one to go on out and explore, but he's going inside to take a nap. It's, it's one of those things where Ian's talking about him, and the doctor just simply goes, you know, I can hear everything you're saying. But he does it in such a teasing manner, whereas, you know, in... Another episode, he was ready to throw them out of the TARDIS the first chance he got. So it was, it was yeah. a really good change. In, in previous episodes, he probably would have seen that as the beginning of an uh, attempt at a mutiny. Yeah, yeah. And he did have a rock. So, you know, he could have used that. <laughs> 
Well, I think I think that with with the doctor also is that there's a sense of wanting to just chill him out, like just calm the character down, and just on, on all aspects, not just moments of anger, but like just even before the you remember scenes with the doctor, where it's like even if it was like slight misunderstandings about something completely trivial, he would also oftentimes fly off the handle. Yeah, he would. Yeah. and now he's he's just a lot more engaging and charming of a character. I kind of noticed that when I was watching all through these episodes, every time you mentioned, oh, like he's very charming and things like that. I just, I struggled sometimes seeing that because every single time, like I was thinking that he was turning that way, he would then try to throw Ian out of the TARDIS. <laughs> so it wasn't actually until this episode where I actually, this for me was his change to that softer character. Yeah, I think this is where it's really complete. You know, you started seeing it in the Sensorites where he decides to stay and fix things because it's the right thing to do. And here is where his personality is finally kind of settled and it's warmer and it's more friendly and pleasant and, and even grandfatherly. It's wonderful. One thing I really, really enjoy is his reaction when he figures out where they are. He's there in the TARDIS and it's just him and he's talking to himself and he's giggling and he's just very excited. That's and... where he wonders if he can convince Ian that he landed there on purpose. And yes. He's like, oh, wait, I was asleep, so I can't pull it off. But oh, if only I could. It's very <laughs> I wonder impish. if I can gaslight my companions. <laughs> uh, to move on a little bit, I really liked the lighting in the cave the way they were using the light on top of the TARDIS to illuminate things, which leads us into our introduction of Kukulian. Cocky Lickin. Cocky Lickin, Cocky as, Lickin. as Ian called him. No comment. So the seeds to, to Kukulian had been kind of seeded. You know, we get that, that scene with Vicky and Bennett before the TARDIS lands that's basically setting the stage. And Bennett mentions this mysterious Kukulian character. Then we hear nothing more about him until we see him in the cave. And he just appears, looking kind of menacing. Some critics have commented on how obviously rubber the costume is. I think it's really cool. I, I, I love it. I love, I, I, I specifically was just like, I love this creature design. I love it. I dig it a lot. It looks great. It's like, it does give the impression not only of something that's menacing, but based on what the doctor said about the inhabitants of that planet and what you see later from like the relics and the, that were left over something that was menacing but also intelligent and was able to create you know, and, and, and build a civilization. I, I thought it was wonderful. I found his voice hilarious, though. He reminded me of Terry Gilliam's old man character in Holy Grail. <laughs> Answer me these questions three and the other side, you see. <laughs> Just That's what he sounded like, and I couldn't take him too seriously. And that brings us back to Richard the. Third. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, let's create a character where you cannot pronounce his name with a Q in it and <laughs> have him be the menacing bad guy. And it would make him a fantastic cosplay. But he says he's oh, their friend and then he shows Barbara off a cliff. He sealed off the passageway for Ian. So it's like, what's Ian doing? Is he just like blindly just still walking forward? Like, why haven't I heard them behind me yet? What's going on? I mean, he's just a monumentally nasty piece of work from when we first meet him. Absolutely. He just seemed... Okay, in my notes, I have Bugface here is less of a villain and more of just a complete a-hole. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's just a jerk. 
It's very true. In my notes, I've got, and of course, he then traps the Doctor and Ian in the cave. Asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I find the irony because the first thing I had was Bennett is kind of the worst. Because earlier when we met Bennett, he was just like really frustrating. I get that you can't walk in theory. But don't be so rude to Vicky. I called him Bearded Maitland because he reminded me of the captain from the Sensorites. I also, in my notes, said, Vicky, you better get used to being completely ignored and talked down to because you're in 1960s era Doctor Who. And that's just what you're in for. Unless you're Barbara. Because Barbara rocks. In my notes on Bennett, I just got Bennett. Grumpy bastard. (laughs) Imagine how more horrible he would be if he wasn't struck and forced to be in bed if he was actually completely physically capable i mean he would have absolutely zero sympathy whatsoever it could have been very easy for them to just like not add that element to it if he's just a jerk (laughs) yeah just a jerk yeah but they needed him to be like in a room in order to hide the twist yes so when we see Coquillian and Vicky together, and I, I know I made a joke about gaslighting earlier, but he's basically gaslighting Vicky the whole way through. He's giving Vicky the impression that he's the only one keeping her and Bennett safe. He's very, very mean to her and claims that the rest of his people would kill her if they got their way. He's the nice one. Yeah, wow. <laughs> He's, wow. he's just missing uh, some fake uh, social media accounts in order to like complete the gaslighting. <laughs> he's the only one of the Dido people that Vicky has ever seen. I'm questioning as to how she's not saying, well, how do I know you're the nice one? Because she's written as young and naive and yeah, frankly, she's had yeah. a terrible experience and is just dealing with it and, the best she can. And did you see the collar that she was wearing? I mean, the design of that thing made her look like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> By that stage, Vicky's rescued Barbara. And during that whole exchange with Coquillian, she's hiding Barbara in the same room, who is, of course, annoyingly logical because she asks Vicky, why doesn't he just kill you? <laughs> Damn it, Barbara. Always asking these good questions. That's because that's because Barbara doesn't doesn't put up with any shit. She's like, you know, I'm not going to do this, like, you know, harassed for like months or days at a time. You know, I'm not going to deal with this. If there's, if there's no hope and you're just going to you know, do this to me, you might as well just kill me because that's how Barbara is because she's badass. Speaking of bullshit, because that's how you do a segue, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony mentioned this before, but when the doctor and Ian are in the cave and oh. they're nearly out and suddenly there's a little pulley thing that puts uh. out your, your classic little trap spike things baby traps um why it it really seemed like it's like oh man we got to do a cliffhanger here um booby trap booby trap and a and a questionable looking monster down below on the booby trap it doesn't make much sense from a narrative perspective if the dido people are supposedly peaceful why do they have a random booby trap in a cave also, the, there was something wrong with the acting there. When, when Ian is trapped, and he makes mention that it's razor sharp, yet when he makes that proclamation, his palm of his hand like rubs right de- like completely across it. <laughs> like, <laughs> which if it was anywhere sharp, he would be bleeding. For, forgive that. It is a show. I don't look at those. That's not important. I mean, I, I just uh, think it would have been fine if he would have just maybe like lightly touched it and been like, oh man, this is really sharp. But that cliffhanger brings us into episode two. 
desperate measures. So what's the first thing that happens? The doctor gets Ian to start stripping. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> hey, he looked great in that suit, by the way. That was sharp. Always looks good in that suit. It's fine. I mean, who says that the 60s was a misogynistic era? Julie's already objectifying Ian. I, for one, am deeply offended. I think he was better in the headdress during the Aztecs episode. <laughs> <laughs> so you have it here first. Uh, Men in Doctor Who are just for Julie to lust over. But speaking of reversing roles, it's, it's Barbara that's all bloodthirsty in this episode. Ooh, she yes. kills an innocent pet. A few things about this pet. <laughs> the, the noise and the music that they used for that creature drove me nuts. You mean it's scream that had a weird reverb on it that didn't fit anything else in the area? Well, the scream, the I think it was actual music where like it went in between where Ian and the doctor were and then over to Barbara and then the extremely long length of time it took to get out of the cave and it was just I, I couldn't do it i was like that was a terrible sound choice we'll call it sound it's actually the, the the scream is uh the same noise as the as one of the daleks they just heavily modulated it so they just completely reused the soundscape from that first dalek serial eh, whatever worked yeah it, it didn't bother me except for like i said the reverb on it it's a little weird i know we'd normally have the ian murder count but <laughs> in this one we start the barbara murder count after she kills i think that the, the monster i think they calls her sandy yes so after sandy. barbara murders sandy in cold blood that could have been edited a bit tighter to have her do it but she had plenty of time where vicky's like no stop don't do that and then she just does it anyway <sighs> cold blooded Absolutely. She does not hesitate. I would like to point out that, you know, we're only in season two, and one could argue that uh, we are already going against what Sidney Newman wants, and we have a bug-eyed monster. <laughs> but this is why this... Uh, are you referring to Sandy or Coquillian? Yeah, Sandy. Oh, okay. I, will, I, will, I won't classify Coquillian like that because it's a costume. Spoilers. I think that was spoiled in, in Julie's summary. So that's okay. <laughs> I mean, if if you think about this story, and and this is where those of you who are playing the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension drinking game should take a drink, because I'm about to mention Sandifer. One of the things Sandifer talks about here is how this story completely subverts expectations. Right? You've got a monster which turns out to be a man in a rubber suit, which is you know David Whittaker's best joke so far because. Doctor Who monsters look like people in rubber suits. And then you've got this screaming beast thing that turns out to be Vicky's pet. And so these things that look dangerous turn out to not be. I don't know. I think Kikulian is still pretty dangerous considering how many people he murdered. Oh, I, absolutely. But he's... But he's not actually an alien. Which was a, a nice little twist that I, I rather enjoyed, that it, it really was kind of a Scooby-Doo plot in that respect. And I would have got away for it if it weren't for you damn time travelers. Exactly. I mean, and, and also in all fairness, I mean, it's pre-Scooby-Doo, so. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, is always an important 
time frame pre and post Scooby Doo analysis pre and post Scooby Doo. I mean, first you have pre and post Scooby Doo, and then once you get into Scooby Doo, it's pre and post Scrappy Doo because Scrappy is the worst. Yes, Scrappy is is the worst. Let's not get sidetracked on Scrappy Not to go off into a tangent, but that that is pretty interesting when you think about it. How um, that that silly cartoon animated show has provided us with two systems of, of, of reference or analysis for pop culture. So the the backdrop of Vicky being upset about the cold-blooded murder of Sandy coincides perfectly with Ian and the Doctor making it to the spaceship. And that really gives us the opportunity for the Doctor to jump in and be paternal and comfort Vicky. I don't think he does a very good job with that. I thought he did a better job than he ever did with Susan. <laughs> yeah. Because the way I have it is it's still the Doctor being his like kind of persuasive self and trying to get what he wants, but he's very adorable about it. So he's still manipulative, but he does it in such a way that you're just like, oh, he's just a cute old man. So, yes and no. He does a better job than he used to be because he's more adorable about it, but he's still manipulating Vicky. To be completely fair, this was his first time attempting to manipulate a young woman into running off with him. So he's not quite as smooth <laughs> as he is later on. True. I mean, effectively, his, his comfort uh, towards Vicky is basically, I would argue, guilt-tripping her into making her feel bad about the fact that he was trying to convince her that Barbara was doing all these things to protect her and like totally disregarding the fact that Vicky Vicky's argument was I was screaming at her to to tell her not to do that and she didn't listen to me. Yeah. No one listens to Vicky this entire serial. It's just sad. We're back to gaslighting basically. Yeah. I do think it's kind of funny from a behind the scenes perspective. They got rid of a character that they didn't know what to do with and then they brought in another character who is essentially almost the same what i'm interested in is that and i don't know how this is going to work because again i haven't seen a the rest but they're barbara and and her they're starting off on the wrong foot you know it's like barbara killed her pet they don't well vicky definitely doesn't like barbara and i don't know that barbara really particularly cares for vicky as well so i'm actually kind of interested to see if that plays out at all or if they just kind of let that go off to the side or to come on that. Could be interesting to have a little bit more of a conflict like that to happen for the rest of the season as opposed to just kind of throw it out in the first episode. We shall see. Now the Doctor just basically runs off and solves everything on his own, though. Yeah, so everyone else gets pushed to the side when the Doctor goes to Bennett's room and figures everything out. And I think that's why it's a turning point for me for the Doctor because this is really the first time that he's been by himself while he deals with whatever this, you know, issue, bad guy, what have you. And you got to see him by himself without Barbara and figuring everything out. And I just really enjoyed that. It feels more doctorish. It really does. And of course, once he's in the hall in the cave and he meets Coquillian. Oh, that was awesome. Yeah. You had the great atmosphere, you had the spooky music, and the way he's just doing the sort of the detective reveal. Like, I know all of what's going on here. 
So the the set, I mean, you, you, you talk about that, Don. The set is very basic, very atmospheric, though. Uh, for me, it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, it, it works. It doesn't need a whole lot of detail. It, it... Those smoking pillars that are just gorgeous. And then, of course, you come down to the acting and the Doctor is just bossing it at the beginning. He's so defiant. He's got his back to Coquillian as he approaches. He sees straight through the the mirage. It's It's just so awesome. I did really like the fact that going back to our Scooby-Doo plot that they use the fact that Doctor Who monsters look like guys in suits. And mm-hmm. in this case, it's it's literally just a guy in a suit who then takes off his mask and it explains his really ridiculous plan. <laughs> I mean, for me, that's just so smart, because if you're watching it for the first time and this is a story that I have huge nostalgia for because i think i first saw it when i was seven or eight years old but watching it for the first time you're not going to expect it to be a man in a suit because all doctor who monsters look like that exactly it's so smart you kind of expect that he's working with coquillian you don't expect that he is coquillian but i I do find his i got caught killing somebody and then we crashed and they somehow invited me to the big meetup with everyone else, and I had explosives. So I killed everyone else to hide the fact that I was arrested. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's stretching credulity, for sure. But I like the fact that he just kept talking <laughs> to the doctor. He just kept on giving his thing, and then they had a cool little fight. I feel like, though, those, the business motivations and his cover-up I feel like, you know, it, yes, it does, you know, is kind of ridiculous, but it's not as bad because you're not dealing with it like in real time. It's something that's mentioned in the past. So it's, you know, you can forgive it a little bit. It doesn't seem so ridiculous. I just thought, OK, he's just crazy. Yeah. And that made it made a lot more sense. I loved the doctor's outrage over Bennett's behavior. His righteous anger was oh. just so well played oh, for me. And then he actually got to get, you know, actually got to fight a little bit. He did. Oh, it was With the sword. so great. I love that sword he play. Pretty much held his own too. Yeah. Oh, we've got more of that to come, guys. So then, Doctor's almost you know he he's starting to lose, and that can happen. And then we find out that he didn't kill everybody because Chad and Brad show up. <laughs> That's what they call them because they look like. In any 80s movie in which there's a ski lodge or something, there's always those a-hole rich townies. They're trying to take them out and away <laughs> from, from the locals. That's what those guys look like. So I called them Chad and Brad. I, Makes sense. I, that is, so that's perfect. That, I would like to say, though, so, despite all of the like wonder and beauty of that of the set piece and that final scene there, when Chad and Brad show up, once Bennett starts like you know backing away in fear without the mask on and having those rubber feet on he looks <laughs> utterly ridiculous <laughs> i could not stop laughing <laughs> that's one of the things that actually confuses me about chad and brad right so they they don't talk at all these supposedly very friendly delightful dido people don't say a damn word and i'm just wondering are they meant to be ghosts are they meant to be survivors does it even matter they're just all out of nice (laughs) 
I don't think it matters. Fair. Well, I think the show was playing around with the idea of like, you know, was that a ghost? Was it maybe, you know, a projection of Bennett maybe feeling guilt or, you know, having an hallucination? Is it a, you know, was it a hologram? Was it real survivors? Who knows? Well, they turned the the radio beacon off later on. So I I don't think they were necessarily ghosts. But like when they turn off the radio beacon, nobody's left. So, like, what what is that to the benefit too? Like, because more people were coming. Characters that are seeing, I know, but I mean, but there's nobody out of the characters we know beforehand. None of them are left. They have all gone or, or or passed away. So one thing to to note on this is David Whitaker's script. When they kind of figured out how long each episode would be, tallied up to being two hours an episode. And Dennis what? Spooner had to very heavily edit it down. So there are probably a few things that got lost along the way. See, I just got the feeling that because of the experiences of these people landing, nearly wiping out their entire race, and I'm hoping there's more than two of them left, it had made whoever remained much more isolationist and not wanting any more humans, especially those from Earth, to come and visit their little rock. The Dido people, they're only meant to be like a couple of hundred of them. How I, I realize I might be going too far down the rabbit hole, but how is that a genetically viable species? <laughs> it's, it's really not. I mean, sorry. Let's, they're, let's like, they're like space pandas. <laughs> I'm sorry. Any species that is too lazy to mate deserves to die out. Well, they might mess up their hair. I mean, you saw Ooh, their... Perfectly quaffed. Exactly. They're too busy working out. No, no, no. See, I don't take that argument. That's not a serious argument. We're going to move on. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. So, Vicky. (laughs) We have our first voluntary person coming on board the TARDIS. Was it very voluntary, though? Well, I mean, she could have stayed and waited for the rescue ship. By herself? I just think that... She, She said many times, you know, she was all right there. She didn't need no man to come along and save her. She knew what she was doing. I mean, to be fair, she is actually asked aboard rather than just straight up abducted. So it's an improvement. <laughs> it is a big step. That's fair. But I love her I love her reaction. It's that wide-eyed wonder that we are so used to now. And it's the first time we're seeing someone do that. It was very it wasn't quite it's bigger on the inside. But it was close to, it's bigger on the inside. It was getting there. We certainly got that outside when she was like, oh, you're in that old box? What? And then, of course, you know, you see her go in and and she's astounded, even though she doesn't say the immortal words. (laughs) Bringing in that character, I mean, one, it's crucial for the show, especially that back then while they were still aiming to, I mean, I would, would you say that the show was still trying to be an educational children's television show? Yeah, Sydney Newman was still behind the scenes, so yeah. You know, the character of Vicky provide, you know, it was needed in order to provide, you know, another set of youthful eyes and a youthful perspective to give to the show. And so now the advantage is, is that unlike Susan, now this is a person that you can still provide a sense of, like, wonder and surprise, something that people can latch onto and empathize with more so than with Susan, it seemed like, it was either absolute, you know, terror or previous knowledge because she was, you know, the doctor's granddaughter. So it's 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 good. And I think it's a good addition to the show to have that type of character. And I think that was probably something they felt that was needed going forward. 
So we leave our erstwhile heroes with the aforementioned unstable landing leading to the literal cliffhanger into the next story. Alright, so that concludes our story discussion. Let's move on to our metrics. We have previously tracked the Ian murder count, which did not get added to. There's the camp count. Do you think there was anything particularly camp here? I'm not certain. Maybe Kikillian's cloak? Cape, maybe? Mm. Eh, Maybe. That's a reach. That's definitely a reach. I'm going with a, a, a veto. Susan is gone, so we no longer have the Susan freakout count. However, I'm willing to propose, because I think we might get to witness it again, that we add the Barbara murder count to the metrics. What? Oh, yes. So, Barbara murder count. One. But then we would have to go back and and add in those Daleks she ran over with the truck. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was at least six, maybe? Sure. Barbara murder count. Seven. Including the drug bullets. <laughs> All right. So with that, with those paltry metrics, let's move on to our vote. So we're going to start with Don. Uh, what can I say about this episode that we haven't gone over already? Overall, I enjoyed it. There is some cheese in it as far as things that don't make a lot of sense, like the the trap that was there specifically for a cliffhanger Bennett's crazy plan that somehow said as long as I dress up like a member of this alien species it'll be okay that said I I enjoyed it and it it didn't overstay its welcome so I'm gonna be slightly generous I'm gonna give it a 7 out of 10 weird staffs that are actually bits of construction equipment I did enjoy it. It had some good moments. I'm actually kind of sad that Susan's gone. I I actually enjoyed uh, a good bit of her stuff, despite her freak out moments. But the story was good. I love Scooby-Doo. It was very reminiscent of that. I didn't mind the whole booby trap thing. I don't think I thought about it as hard as you guys did. I was just like, all right, there's booby trap. Yeah, sure. That's fine. But I didn't like seeing Barbara commit murder. Well, not a big fan. I'll give it six Sandys out of ten. Poor Sandy. Rest in peace. Okay, Riley, over to you. Why does this always happen? Why do I always seem to vote, like, on an one extreme compared to everyone else? Okay, so I didn't get to mention previously, I believe that um, there was a lot of really interesting shots in the show. For example, there's a shot when we have the Doctor and Ian uh, back in the cave after the, you know, cave, you know, exit collapse, which is this interesting low angle shot with a really interesting lighting that was very unique for the time, I thought. Also, when they're uh, dealing with with Sandy and they're going through the booby trap, it's, there's this wide shot, long shot where it's cut straight down the middle of uh, of the horizon of, of of the frame where the Doctor and Ian are up top and Sandy's below. And I don't know why, but it reminded me so much of like a side-scroller video game, and I thought that was very interesting. Overall, the pace just moves. It doesn't dawdle. It moves forward. You know, like it or don't like it, you don't have enough time to really like worry too much about like, oh, that was pretty rough because you're already on to something else. It's like, 
it doesn't it it, it just it just has a very good pace it has an interesting uh wonderful tw- enjoyable twist for the time period in which it came out and i i give it a uh, uh, eight out of ten ridiculous rubber feet all right so from my perspective i i can't get away from my childhood nostalgia for this story everything is phenomenal when you see it when you're like seven years old and i think this reminds me of that time in my life where everything was a lot more simplistic this one is where we get a much warmer doctor which is something i really love it's a basic storyline but it has a purpose which is to introduce vicky this one just gives me those warm fuzzies so i'm going to give it seven and a half murdering flare guns out of 10. (laughs) So we have a story average for this between us of 7.13. We have been the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. You have been listening to our episode on the rescue, and we look forward to next time. Thank you, and good night. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Filipek, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Didoba Gaslight, was recorded on Wednesday, May the 15th, 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on your preferred podcasting app. And always remember, it's easy to disguise yourself in an unconvincing rubber suit when you live in a universe where aliens look like humans in unconvincing rubber suits.